Hello, everyone. I'm an indigenous elder of the Eastern Cherokee and Muscogee tribes, and you're listening to the, the Awakened, Awakened Underground, Underground Podcast. This podcast represents the opinions and experience of its hosts and guests for educational and informational purposes only. Psychedelic plant medicines are sacred technologies that have been stewarded by indigenous people around the world since before recorded history. As these indigenous wisdoms enter the mainstream culture, we ask you to please operate from a place of respect and reciprocity. As to the exploitation and colonization of First Nations people. It's imperative to use immense caution when embarking on your journey to work with psychedelic medicines, as they are powerful tools for human transformation that are not to be taken lightly. Information shared within this podcast should not be taken as medical advice. Awakened Underground, its guests and partners are not liable for any actions of your choosing. With that said, we, we trust, trust you will make responsible and ethical choices under your own free will. What's up, gang? I'm your host, Cody Blue, and this episode's called Healing Law. This is your brain on drugs. This is your brain on drugs. America's public enemy number one. To a new and dangerous area, the use of hallucinogens. Bad trip. Both call it not a war on drugs, but a war on consciousness. You are now entering the Awakened Underground Podcast. In 2016, Big oil conglomerates commenced a multi-billion dollar project to build a 1,170-mile-long underground crude oil pipeline in the United States. This pipeline was built on indigenous land, tearing through ancient sacred burial grounds, violating numerous treaties and environmental policies. The pipeline I speak of now is no other than the infamous Dakota Access Pipeline built on the Standing Rock Reservation. This injustice catalyzed a massive environmental and indigenous rights protest. For the first time in modern history, all of the North American tribes united under one banner to rally around the protection of Standing Rock's main water supply as the oil pipeline was being built underneath the Missouri River. And in 2016 alone, over 3 million gallons had already spilled, contaminating our drinking water and destroying our environment. 15,000 water protectors from all over the world traveled to the Standing Rock Reservation to peacefully protest the illegal construction of this pipeline in the name of indigenous rights and environmental justice. As devoted freedom fighters and activists, me and my family wanted to get involved and do anything we could to support the cause. At the time, I was directing a music video for my father's new album, We Are The Ones, so we decided to take the budget the record label had given us and use it to create a documentary-style music video that would capture the injustices taking place and help raise awareness for Standing Rock. Our friend Young Pony introduced us to an indigenous elder by the name of Grey Wolf, who is the president of the Los Angeles chapter of the American Indian Movement. We asked Grey Wolf for permission to film at Standing Rock, in which he gave us his blessing and even offered to be our personal liaison and take us directly into the heart of the protests. Every tribe has a different way of doing things, 
And that is one of the reasons First Nations people don't have one singular leader in the fight for Indigenous rights like the Black community does, with figures like Martin Luther King or Malcolm X. But in my opinion, Grey Wolf is that figure. He is a badass revolutionary that has been a leader in his community and a formative voice in fighting for the rights of Native people. He was even asked to lead the Standing Rock resistance, but he declined because he felt it had to be led by someone who was from the tribe of that region. Now, with the support of Grey Wolf and the American Indian Movement, we assembled our production team and traveled to the resistance camps to document the protests. But we were ill-prepared for what we were about to witness. On November 20th, 2016, me and my beloved team were wrapping up after a long day of filming when we got the call from Grey Wolf saying that there was action on the bridge and to gather our equipment and get down there immediately. We quickly suited up, loaded our van, and beelined to the pipeline. We parked as close as we could and sprinted to the bridge. As we neared, thick smoke filled the air. Explosions shook the ground and a chorus of cries and screams of anguish echoed through the night sky. We scaled a hill, and as we came to the bridge, we finally saw what was going on, and it froze us in our tracks, as this was no protest. This was a war zone. We looked on as over a thousand unarmed water protectors, many elderly, women, and children, were violently assaulted by law enforcement on treaty land. Around a hundred armed and armored officers, including several Humvees and tanks, formed a barricade in front of the pipeline and rained all hell down on the protesters. We watched as peaceful civilians were attacked with tear gas, flashbang grenades, attack dogs, mace, rubber bullets, and water cannons in sub-freezing conditions. Now, these may sound like non-lethal weapons, but that does not tell the full story. A horse lied dead on the ground, shot in the head with a rubber bullet. A 21-year-old girl named Sophia Wolanski's arm was blown apart by a flashbang grenade as it hung on by its tendons. Hordes of people writhed on the ground in agony, covered in blood, choking and blinded from the tear gas, as hundreds of the water protectors were shrouded in ice, hypothermic and blue from being violently hosed down with water cannons in these freezing conditions. I distinctly remember an image of an old indigenous woman kneeling at the front lines in prayer position with her eyes closed, encased in thick sheets of ice, as she was violently hosed by water cannons mounted atop a military tank, as several officers repeatedly shot her with rubber bullets at point-blank range, even though she was doing nothing but praying. The only bit of order in this maelstrom of chaos was to be found by the members of AIM, as Grey Wolf Young Pony and Jason were loading these frozen, blinded, and bloodied water protectors into the flatbed of their truck and shuttling them to the medical tent. 
I signaled to us to storm the front line so we could film these blatant human rights violations that were transpiring before our eyes. But my crew was paralyzed in fear. Not to mention, we had rented an extremely expensive camera package for the shoot and the police were spraying everyone's cell phones and portable cameras with the fire hoses on purpose as to break them and kill all evidence of the incident. I turned to my DP, my dear friend from New York and lifelong creative partner, Alexander Chinisi, and assured him that we had press badges on and that it would be illegal for the police to attack us. And it was enough to convince him to come to the front lines with me. But as soon as we got close enough to the action to document it, we were immediately targeted and attacked by law enforcement. As we were both tear gassed and Alex was shot with rubber bullets in an unconstitutional suppression of free speech. This carnage raged on for over eight hours that night, with hundreds of water protectors being hospitalized with hypothermia and other injuries. But the most shocking part of all this came the next day when we flipped through the news channels and found zero media coverage of the event. Somehow, state police federal law enforcement and the U.S. military were stationed on indigenous land with no legal authority, attacking thousands of American citizens that pay their salaries in the name of protecting a oil company. And not a single news outlet covered the event. Eventually, the police would even go on to call the protest a riot, deny the use of water cannons on civilians entirely, and even claim Sophia Wolanski's wounds to be self-inflicted from the failed detonation of an explosive device as opposed to the tactical grenade they threw at her. This is when I learned the truth about the law. How it is bent and manipulated by special interest groups to protect the powerful and maintain the status quo. I had read about this for many years, But to be on the receiving end of police brutality and to bear firsthand witness to the legal system's corruption, cruelty, and violence left me and my team in a state of post-traumatic shock. When the sun rose the next morning, me and my team sat at the breakfast table in silence, catatonically staring at our breakfast plates, unable to eat. But Grey Wolf, Young Pony, and everyone we were with from the American Indian movement had a much more upbeat attitude about the whole thing. If anything, they seemed empowered by the experience, grateful to have made it out alive and be gifted another day on Earth to fight the good fight. When they asked us what was wrong, Alex looked up from his plate in a deadpan and said, I cannot believe the U.S. government could do that to its own people. And that is when Grey Wolf's smile fell from his face. And he looked him dead in the eyes and said, Welcome to my world. This is our world every single day. I said, I cannot believe you didn't expect this was going to happen. I said, this is how the government treats our people. So I said, if you think anything else other than this was going to happen, you're, you're a fool. You're naive. But at the same time, I'm laughing because I'm saying, well... Made it through another one, so another day to uh, go back and fight in. It it was pretty uh, intense. 
So uh, when I got hit with the tear gas, uh, I could not breathe. And I actually was looking for a place to lie down and just die. And just about that time, I uh, someone picked me up from behind and said, I've got you, and took off running and dragged me out of the tear gas. And that turned out to be a young man named Jason. Jason actually saved my life that night, which was unbelievable. So afterwards, some of the people were asking me, weren't you afraid? And I said, <laughs> of course I was afraid. To be not afraid is to be a fool. You know, I was afraid, but it didn't stop me from doing what I had to do. And that's why, you know, I went in the second time. That's why we made all the trips back to uh, to pick up uh, injured people. That's why we did what we did. And that's why I'll do it again. You know, so that's uh, basically how <laughs> I met uh, Cody and uh, his crew. I, I think something that uh, I should have done at the beginning, but I failed to do because uh, of personal reasons. I want to introduce myself. My name is Gray Wolf. I am Yoem tribe, which people uh, mistakenly call Yaquis. Uh, my mother was a full-blood uh, Yoem. Uh, my father was half. I grew up in my tradition, and I have been a fighter since I was a kid because of my stepfather, who was also half UM, uh, he taught me so much. I, uh, I am what I am today because of, of my stepfather. He was a very strong man who, who believed in speaking out, and uh, he suffered for it, and I have suffered. Well, actually, I have not suffered because I never allow people to, to bring me down. I know what I say. I, I stand by what I say. I will take every opportunity to, to uh, bring attention to issues that need to be discussed. And that, that was when I started getting arrested for no reason. Uh, I was arrested twice for st stealing my own car. And that's when I realized these laws aren't made for us. They're made to control us. That's why sometimes you, you have to leave your comfort zone. You know, I, I'm, I'm 77 years old. I'm a grandfather. I am a great-grandfather. I should be at home, you know, uh, uh, waiting for my pudding to be done. But no, I'm out there still doing these things because I feel like I have to. We are constantly told that the United States of America is a land of law. And this is, I don't think anything could be further from the truth because when a law is made that uh, goes against uh, certain segments of the population, that's not a just law. And Standing Rock is, a, is an excellent example of this. Uh, if, if you know the history of Standing Rock, you would know that the pipeline was not supposed to go through reservations. It was supposed to go by uh, Fargo. And the residents of Fargo found out about it and protested. And they moved the pipeline to the reservations. But not only did they go across reservation land, they also went across sacred burial grounds. And with no regard. And people say, well, what's wrong with that? And I say, well, it would be the same thing as if I went into uh, Arlington Cemetery, tore up all the graves and said, let's put it in an amusement park. Uh, you know, what makes one life more valuable than another? 
I don't get it, you know. Uh, most people don't understand that up until 1978, the Freedom of Religion Act was very instrumental in allowing our people to practice our ceremonies, but also to use our own medicines, you know, that uh, these medicines were passed down for thousands of years. And when the U.S. government was formed, they stopped us from doing certain things because they were afraid that we were going to rise up and, you know, uh, do something. And so a lot of our medicines were outlawed and a lot of our uh, spiritual practices were outlawed. And in 1978, with this Freedom of uh, Religion Act, all this was reversed. And even today, some of the ceremonies you know, are strange to to some people, like the uh, peyote ceremony that is done. But these ceremonies are, are again, thousands of years old. Uh, basically in the Southwest, uh, in the Sonora Desert, where, where uh, peyote is grown. And most people don't even understand what peyote is. It's a cactus. And certain tribes think that it's the footprint of the deer. And you go out to the desert, you find a little cactus, you pick it up, and you eat it. You don't cook it, you don't boil it, you don't make stew with it, I don't know what other people do, and dry it, and all this other craziness. I, I don't know anything about that. That's how it's done traditionally. And it's been outlawed for so many years because people don't understand it. But we're at the point right now where these medicines have to be shared. They have to be... Uh, uh, I don't think Creator gave us these medicines just for us. I just was having a conversation with someone. I said, what if Creator gave the cure for cancer to white people? Do white people have the right to say, well, this cure is ours and we cannot share it with anyone else because Creator gave it to us? I go, no, that's not the way it works. You know, Creator gave it to, to help man heal, but all men. But, and here's the thing, we need to do this with respect. We need to do this with knowledge. And that's what's not happening. A lot of these medicines are being abused, and that's where the appropriation of medicines comes in. I get in arguments with people all the time because uh, people will come up to me and they'll say, aren't you part of the American Indian movement? I say, yeah, I am. Well, what, what do you think about the sale of sage? And I said, sage is a medicine, but what people forget, it's one of many medicines that is used to clean, to cleanse. That's what sage means, to clean, to chase away the bad, the negative. So to me, you say, you cannot sell sage. Well, okay, I don't know why, but why are you able to sell tobacco, which is also one of the saging herbs that is used? And they go, oh, never thought about that. So in other words, you come to me smoking a cigarette, disrespecting tobacco, and you're telling me I can't sell sage. There's not one way to do anything. Each tribe is, is unique and has its own ways, and those, those should be respected. When uh, I was growing up, uh, I did not believe in certain things, but I respected them. As indigenous people, we, we have no religion. We have a way of life. And that way of life is unique to each tribe and to each clan within those tribes. They understand that, they respect each other, and they work together, see? And that's what we need to do. That's why when we start talking about legalities and all that, sorry, but those legalities are made-up legalities. To me, non-existent because uh, our people have done these things for thousands of years. We're going to continue doing them until time ends, you know, and uh, 
Uh, that's just the way it is. I do the disclaimer at the beginning of the show, and I would not have done it if I did not believe in what I had said. Uh, I think it's important that we make sure that we do not use these medicines uh, in the improper way. Uh, I think that uh, with the proper knowledge, then that these medicines are, are very beneficial. And that is why I have agreed to do the disclaimer. My name is Alfred, OCO, which is Hello in Cherokee, Estongo, which is Hello in Muskogee. I agreed to do this. I'm very, very careful what I put my name on. And I've known Cody for a while, and I trust him. I believe in him. I support him. Uh, we had a very long talk about the fragility of what he was trying to do, that he would have a lot of people probably discouraging him from what he is choosing to do. I support him. His heart is in a good place. I've been on this earth for a long time, and I've met a lot of people who've had these ideas and dreams of... of uh, either saving indigenous people or borrowing from indigenous people to save the world. And they had no clue what they were doing because it was coming from a place of ego. Trust me, Cody has no ego. He is doing what he feels he needs to do and has been inspired to do. Uh, we had a long conversation about the pros and cons about the sharing of these medicines. If someone has a cure for something, why not put it out there for everybody to use? And that is what Cody's trying to do. He's trying to meet with indigenous people. He's not trying to take from indigenous people. He's trying to understand and ask questions and explain to them what he's trying to do. And so far... He's being supported by these people. So to make it clear, I trust Cody. I wholeheartedly support what he's doing, and that's why I'm here. With that said, we trust you will make responsible and ethical choices under your own free will. Since then, I've lived with and worked with indigenous cultures all over this planet. Every one of them has a prophecy that we have now arrived at a time for the potential of tremendous transformation. And the one that I like the best, because I think it's the most succinct and, and eloquent in a way, is that of the condor and the eagle. And this comes out of the out of the Amazon way back thousands and thousands of years ago. Nobody has any idea of when this prophecy started, but it worked its way up into the Andes and up into the Central America, the Mayan, Aztec uh, cultures, and, and up into the Hopi culture, and right up through North America, across the Bering Straits, you find remnants of it in, 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 in the Asian steppes. And it basically says that back in the midst of history, human societies decided to go on two different paths. One was the path of the condor, which is really the path of the heart, of the intuition, uh, of, of the feminine path, if you want to. And the other was the path of the eagle, which is the path of the mind, of the science, of the industrial, perhaps you could say even of the masculine. And they went their separate routes. And then at one period of history, it was forecast thousands of years ago. It was, it was prophesied that during what is known as the eighth Pachacuti, a Pachacuti is a 500 year period, 
which would begin in the 1490s, the Eagles peoples would become so powerful that they would practically drive the Condor people into extinction. And we know this happened after Columbus, uh, the, 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 the industrial people, those people of science practically drove the indigenous people into extinction. But the prophecy goes on to say that during the next Pachacuti, 500 year interval, beginning in the 1990s, we would arrive at a time with the potential for the two to come together, for the eagle and the condor to fly in one sky, to mate, to dance together, and to create a whole new level of consciousness. And so we're in that time now. The prophecies don't say that it will happen. They say that we are at this time of potential. And so it's up to us to make it happen. On today's episode, we have with us the powerful and brilliant Ariel Dothnie Clark. She is the top psychedelic attorney in the country, a leader in drug policy reform, and a founding board member of the Psychedelic Bar Association. She led the charge for cannabis legalization in California and is leading the charge once again for the political legislation around psychedelics. She has just returned from speaking at Harvard University about the future of psychedelic law, is a member of the Council for Protection of Sacred Plants, and has been honored by Rolling Stone as one of the 18 women shaping the culture of tomorrow. Ariel is joining us today to share her healing journey working with psychedelics, as well as the path to consciously legalizing these medicines, and how we can heal the way we practice law in the process. The Awakened Underground Podcast. My great pleasure to be here. Yeah, seriously, thank you. So we've talked a little bit about this, but what I want to cover today is this episode's called Healing Law, and and I would love to for you to, to talk about the work you're doing within the legal system around medicine, uh, the work you've done around cannabis reform, and just sort of how we can push uh, conscious laws into the culture that will help bring these medicines to the people. But before we get there, I would love to start with your healing story. Uh, could you give us a little bit about you and tell us a little about you and how you got to do the work you're doing and also the work you did with psychedelics and how they've helped heal you? I'd love to share my story. Thank you. Um, I will frame my story by saying that I walk on the red road. This is my inner path. Um, and I'll share more about that. Um, but let me also share about my lineage. I'm biracial. I'm half French American and half Odawa Anishinaabe. Uh, my tribe is in Michigan in the Great Lakes area. Um, and, um, you know, I'll, I'll say that being mixed race in this society, in particular white, European American, and Native American, is kind of an interesting combination of attributes. Um, the white side of my family were poor farmers, um, dysfunctional and addicted and, you know, just poor, um, mostly, not all of them, but many people, you know, kind of lost in middle America, like so many people are, pills, all the things. Yeah. And then the native side of my family, um, you know, just deeply scarred by colonization. Um, you know, my, my grandparents were taken to those off-reservation reser boarding schools and, um, you know, where their names were changed and their hair was cut and they weren't allowed to speak their language or practice their religious traditions. And I think, you know, the last boarding school closed in 1984. 
No shit. Okay. Wild. And, you know, I'm a lawyer and an activist. Um, and I would say a medicine person, but not like in the way of, you know, my deep prayer is contributing to our healing because there's so much wounding really globally. Um, and in, in my life, you know, I, I really felt kind of like I was born with a broken heart. Um, and maybe I felt broken, you know, but like, that's also not my fault. <laughs> right. It's transgenerational trauma, you know, a hundred percent. And then being born into a world where there's so much, just an, a cross section of illness, of ill health, of disconnection, you know, of ill health and how we treat each other, ill health and how we treat the earth. You know, we don't even, you know, many, many of us don't even know another way. And, you know, from both of my lineages and, you know, I, I my family, most people didn't know another way, you know, um, it was just trauma on trauma. But, you know, I think part of it is being an indigenous person. And also, I grew up in a very non-traditional way in a lot of respects. My mom was a political radical. I grew up around a lot of queer people, a lot of people um, who are from other countries that were political refugees and asylum seekers. Um, I just was really living on a, in a lot of respects on the fringes. You know, we had a light blue VW van that said, <laughs> I love Tijuana on the back. Like, we didn't live anywhere at different times. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. we were living in the van. We were living on people's couches. Like, it was, uh, you know, it was not a traditional upbringing. And what I saw was, okay, here's this dominant culture. And this dominant culture continues to squash people queer people, indigenous people, women, you know, just like, and I, and I was aware of it and exposed to it. I mean, literally since I can remember and probably uh, epigenetically, intergenerationally, you know, that memory in your cellular structure of this dominance, you know, I always knew like I wanted to be able to navigate and negotiate and protect like my people or these, you know, people in these systems and structures of power that were completely insane. So it's been a life path of seeking justice, but also one of a lot of deeply rooted self-destruction and sadness. I suffered from terrible like crippling nightmares for 20 years. Oh, wow. And they were always of little children or animals being killed or hurt, or I was being chased. Wow. Several times a week. And then like anxiety, depression, substance use disorder, alcohol use disorder. There was like this feeling, this this like place that I could not escape of feeling broken and unworthy and without value and abandoned and abused you know, it's fascinating because a hundred percent we know through the epigenetic model that transgenerational trauma is scientific fact, yeah, and it's a spiritual fact too. If you do this type of work, but the interesting thing about chronic depression, anxiety, addiction, being born with a broken heart, you know, the common through line with all of these quote unquote conditions or mood disorders is highly sensitive people. Uh, but we're told that we're sick or something's wrong with us when really the society is sick and we're just opened enough for whatever reason, whether it's birth or our upbringing or environment, whatever it is, we're sensitive enough to feel that pain of the earth, of the animals, of the people around us. And then we're told there's something wrong with us for feeling that. 
and then we're given a drug yeah. and then we're stuck in a box. Yeah. So what did you do with that pain? What did you, how did you transmute it? Cause that seems to be the big question for all of us sensitives right now. It's how, what are you going to do with that pain? How are we going to transmute it? How are we going to fight the unconsciousness? How are we going to, going to, going to stime off the suffering in the world? What did you, what did you, what did you do? How did you transmute that? Well, first, I just want to really acknowledge you in saying what you just said and that that really reframe. Um, you know, I, I, I know for me, there was a lot of inner, like I felt so ashamed. I felt so like something was, was so wrong with me. Why couldn't I feel better? You know, like what, what like just, it just like literally I just felt like, terrible deep shame in just being who i am same yeah and it's like so for you to say that to me right now it's medicine it's so beautiful it's so like thank you even hearing it now after all of these years of walking the path that i walk i receive it with deep gratitude you know same uh, reflection sis i mean the crazy thing is, I mean, look at us, like, right? I mean, the 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 life I'm in, I'm in a I'm a white skinned male, you know, cis white man, right? So, and I still feel that tremendous shame and that pain too. Like, I can't imagine you with your lineage, the level of 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 it, because it's so bad for me. Sometimes I go out to a party and. I'm sick afterwards from being steeped in sort of this unconscious behavior that makes me sick. And it's the shame of not speaking up or not knowing how to speak up or not ha how to communicate my feelings, you know, with the community or a community I feel like I don't belong in or doesn't understand me or doesn't see things eye to eye, whether it's the way we treat each other or the animals or the earth, whatever it may be. But thank you. I, I appreciate you reflecting that back at me. <laughs> Hey gang, we'll be back with more after this quick break. And now back to our regular scheduled deprogramming. So what, what was the medicine? What, what, is, what is the medicine? What is the antidote? How, what is the alchemy for the suffering we're inheriting in this life? You know, there are, I think, a couple main, main tools the first is turning deeply toward ourselves. For me, turning deeply toward myself. But you know, like many people who are in a deep place of suffering, I suffered for a long time. You know, I, I, I really did. And then one day, I suppose it was grace. And it was like enough hands had been there around me just not even like nobody knew how much I was suffering because I appeared. I always appear. I always showed up for everything. I was an incredibly good lawyer, an incredibly good student, incredibly successful. Like, you know, I, I have done amazing activism, social justice reform, legal reform. I went to law school at Berkeley. I like started my own law firm. I have done things. I kept doing things. But there was this inner deep disconnect that I would only like go to those dark places like once a week, once every two weeks and just like jettison literally out of my body or yeah. feel terrible at night. But like it was this sort of compartmentalized way of living. And I, I, you know, at some point that lack of integration just became too much. 
And, you know, I, I never fully abandoned myself. And also what I know is that, you know, sometimes I have like been very sad that there were decades where I was in so much pain. And it like I would have thoughts like, I, I wasted so much time, I you know, whatever that is. And then I and then I realized one day actually on LSD <laughs> that I that it all has been a homecoming that like I never there all of that is in service. Right. So it's like we turn toward ourselves and that is very hard to do, especially if we don't think that we are worth turning toward, you know, and so it's like. It's some amazing alchemy of like prayers and our ancestors just putting one foot in front of the other. For me, it was turning toward it, turning toward the pain, turning toward myself with help around me, you know, with learning how to ask for help with an, an immense amount of work. But it's like it is the most beautiful – I mean, it's everything, you know, like that's what – the Red Road is the path of – it is the inner work. It is it is the daily, like everything stems from the inner knowing and tenets for me of integrity and kindness and humility. Like I am walking a path of the elder. Like I want to be an elder someday that holds the space in a beautiful and loving and kind and humble way, you know? And that is like, that's the red road, you know? And it's one of health and choosing health and you know, now I'm learning to like enjoy the air and smell the flowers and like praying to my body to relax into itself and feel joy because I literally did not feel good living until about two years ago. Wow. <laughs> wow. But it's the transmutation, right? So how do you turn all of the suffering? Like for me, that was a big part of it. Like the healing is this needs to be useful for not just me. My life is one of service. This is what being a lawyer is, even though a lot of lawyers think it's something else and some ego thing. Being a lawyer and every person on this planet, imagine if we all came from a posture of service, being of service to others and of service to ourselves, you know, like what? That would be amazing. Right. It's like the entire point of life is to serve the other and not the self and so, until there's no need to serve the self. And I know that's a bit of a paradox too, because I do feel like you sort of need to fill your own cup until it overflows into everybody else's, as opposed to giving and giving and giving, and then your your cup's empty and you're depleted. So I mean, like, bit of a bit of a paradox there. But I love what you're getting into. It's something really fascinating. You know, I I haven't told the story on the show. Oh, I feel a little. I feel I haven't told the story on the show, and I will go into it at one point. But like my first mushroom ceremony. Um, I was on a native reservation and the, the, the shaman got sick immediately and, uh, I tried to help him, uh, and I was suddenly ill and he was fine. And I was, I never worked with any of this. I was freaking out. I felt this pain in my heart and I'm going, I'm, I'm thinking, oh my God, I'm fucking with witchcraft. The Christians were right. The Christians were right. What am I doing? And, and I go, what's going on? And they come up to me and they're like, honey, his, his daughter, she goes, honey, you're an, you're an empath. I go, what's an empath? She goes, you feel the pain of other people. How do I get rid of it? And they start teaching me how to get rid of it. Next, I know they're banging a drum in my head, you know, blowing smoke in my face and I leave my body for the first time, right? Have my first, you know, shamanic awakening. And I'll tell the story in more detail later, but I spent, it really gave a lot of clarity to my life and my prognosis as a child for ADHD and depression, anxiety, what that I was feeling this other 
uh, this other energy. And, you know, for a time period, I identified really with, oh, I'm a quote unquote empath. I'm a healer, blah, blah, blah. Right. We all are. It's not, people like to say, oh, you're an It's the, the actual disease is apathy, depression, anxiety, whatever you want to call it. It, that it's not the disease you're actually feeling more and taking on the pain in the collective consciousness, the apathy that disconnected us and caused all the societal inequities in the first place. That's the disease. And a lot of the show we seek to reframe and understand, you know, truly what we're trying to get well and getting well is opening ourselves, opening ourselves to each other. And so we can readjust society and that as an inverse, we will heal ourselves as we heal the culture. That's right. Yeah. No one gave me the tools, you know, so I would escape, uh, I would sedate myself, whether it was sex or, you know, the pharmaceutical meds I was prescribed or my work. What did you escape into before you found the red path or were you always on the red road? Well, I was always on the red road, but I wasn't always aware I was on the red road. Yeah, right. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 I feel you. I feel you know, you. like yeah, when yeah. I, 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 I woke up to it and I was like, oh, damn, here, I've been here all along, but I didn't know that, you know? Yeah, right. It's when you, like when you look back on your life yeah. and you go, oh, my God, everything's yes. been leading up to this moment, yeah. which is something that always happens to me in a yeah. medicine ceremony. The first thing, it's like yeah. you see all these beats in your life leading yeah. you right to that moment. You're like, oh, yeah. Yeah. It's all connected. Yeah. So, okay, you did. Yeah. So, 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 okay, take me, take me to even before you knew you were on the red road, what was, what were the first hallmarks so we can share with people in case they're feeling the same thing? You know, we're, we're archetypes, right? We're all yeah. these archetypes. So, our truth and our story helps, will resonate with certain people that have the same or similar archetype mm-hmm. to us. So, yeah, take us, take us on the early, the early phases of the red road, mm-hmm. maybe your teens. Like, what mm-hmm. did you, where, how did you transmute the energy then? Well, I would say I was kind of a lonely child. I just played by myself. There was a lot of kind of chaos and also disconnection happening around me. Um, you know, I I didn't feel deeply loved. I, you know, a lot of people were sort of abandoning themselves or had abandoned me. I mean, the white side of my family actually like didn't even want to see me for the first like two years of my life because I'm half Native American, but they used another word. What? Like for real. What was the word? I mean, it's the N word, you know, (laughs) like it's like that kind of racism. And then that is the energy that the lineage is giving a child. That's horrific. You know what I'm saying? It's terrible. Yeah. So, you know, I'm still, I mean, to be perfectly honest, I'm still like, healing that wound of like being deeply like hated and rejected, you know? And then the Indian side of my family, I mean, my father was a heroin addict and an alcoholic and everybody was a different version of some sort of like alcoholic or addict. And like most people aren't alive anymore, you know? And, you know, that's just, that's what it is, you know? So one big thing happened when I was a kid. When I was 13, I got really sick. I got, I had this crazy infection in my spine and a huge tumor on my ovary and I almost died and I had to learn how to walk again and that actually started about uh, 30 years of chronic pain which I'm still working through oh my god and you know chronic pain addiction all these different markers are incredibly high in the Native American community as well as in other communities and that was one thing that helped me understand 
like because I it, I felt like, like what's wrong with me my you know I've got all of these things that are going on like what is it and when I finally ner- learned about Native American ancestral trauma and like trauma it like intergenerational trauma it really helps so I would say that too like you know the more that we know the more information we know like real information and coming from a, a a place of forgiveness you know so it's like not it's not your fault to your point. It is, we are interconnected. Like that was another big thing, recognizing like, oh, right. I am in this interconnected web with every person, with every being, with all of history, with the seven generations to come. Like we are in this interconnected place. So these things that I am struggling with are not just my own that are my fault, which is something that capitalism and dominant white culture teaches people, you know? You're just born. You figure things out. The, the the successes you have, everybody's born equally. So like, if you're successful, that means you're a better person. If you aren't, you suck. Right. You know what I mean? Right. Like, one of a million lies. <laughs> right, right. And that's one of the beautiful things. I love what you're saying about, you know, there's nothing... It's important for people who hear this to understand that whatever pain you're going through, in becoming conscious of it and healing it, on the same hand that there is transgenerational trauma, there is transgenerational healing. And it's a level of this work mm-hmm. that is quite the, on, the, on the most periphery in terms of being in the mainstream consciousness. People are stuck on, it's a drug, it's this, it's that, is it safe, is it good, is it that? Okay, well, it's for seekers. Okay, people can heal for it. There is another third pillar, and that is people can heal transgenerationally their families, the collective, as they heal themselves. Something we call proxying. You can, if you do this work a lot, you can, and you've really worked on yourself, you can go in and and heal for the collective. And I've watched people do healings on the collective, and there's no study that is really going to be able to quantify this. But the experiences themselves are are very obvious as they're happening. When you're when you're reliving genocide and slavery and witch burnings and crucifixions and, and, and all these terrible, terrible things, murder, and you're moving through it, you're experiencing it, and then you're purging it and releasing it. It's you are doing a healing on, on the whole. And, and that's a level of this work that's truly heroic. And I don't know when people are fully going to understand that, but I, I, resonate with every everything you're saying how did you find yourself because it sounds like you were suffering with all of this transgenerational trauma for so long how did you come to the medicine and when did you come and did it help did that transgenerational trauma come up in your first ceremony what was that like you know i also just i want to name that i really had an alcohol use disorder and a substance use disorder for many, many, many decades. Okay, fine. Two and a half, you know, a long, a long time, many years. And um, that I, I found that very young in my life, basically like adolescence, you know, and that was, that was my coping mechanism. As I said, you know, it's, it, it's, it was this thing that allowed me to completely almost like escape it was it was an escape hatch um and i just want to say that because um i really never thought like i didn't know how to live in another way i didn't know and all of these layers are there you really like i could not imagine how to live like i did not understand how to live without 
that. And so I'm just sharing that with you and other people because I don't feel that way anymore. Like I deeply healed from that. That healing journey started for me about seven, six, seven years ago. Wow. And like, I didn't know that that was possible. So I just want to say it is possible. And it's everything, you know, it's such a deep blessing. And I say that because also, you know, so many people are suffering from that. So many people in, in the indigenous community in this country. And so, yeah, I just, I just want to name that part of my story and give hope in that respect, you know. So in my language, the word for medicine is mushkiki. And the actual translation it is strength of the earth. That's what like, it's not, it's strength of the earth. So like we go to the earth, like the strength of the earth for healing when we're feeling ill, when we need any, the, this medicine. And so medicine, it's the strength of the earth. It's the plants. It's our connection with the plants. It's also, I mean, now I know the strength of the earth medicine is songs and laughter and dancing and connection. Truth. You know, all of these all of these things. And so, you know, I was really in a dark place, you know, I grew up poor as shit and homeless <laughs> at times. And then here I was living in Venice Beach, California. I rented a house. It was awesome and big. It was like dope. I was driving <laughs> a Mini Cooper that I leased. I never, I mean, I never thought I would have that kind of car. I could buy outfits. I could go to dinner. I could like I wasn't afraid of the mail like I was rich. I understand in like crazy LA, that's like not, but like in actual, <laughs> the, like on planet Earth, wealthy. You, you had know? all the things. I had all the things. And yet I was like, and and also because I, I always did the work around, you know, drug policy reform and social justice and Indian rights issues and all of that. I was also succeeding in the things that I cared about. And I had started my own law firm. And, you know, it's a women-owned law firm. I started that about 12 years ago. I'm like, I, I'm doing everything, but I'm so fucking broken. Why am I so fucking broken? And then I had this, like, small voice that told me to go and take a couple weeks off of work and unplug from everything and just go into the woods and just be in the woods. And I listened. I turned everything off. I wrote. I had like things to write with and draw. And I went and I stayed in this like little kind of cabin like outside of Big Sur. And I just walked in the woods and it was raining and I would just cry every day. And I just like, like I was outside with the trees, my friends, and with like the moon and like the sun or mostly clouds and like just like receiving so much medicine. Like I was given, I it was a ceremony. Like that is what happened. I was given, like I was given a rebirth. I had an experience where I knew everything, like I was fully cracked open. I knew everything to be love. I knew that it all was forgiven. At one point, I understood that time doesn't exist. Like it was, and again, no psychedelics, no nothing, like maybe a little very low THC cannabis, like that is it. And it was the the medicine of the earth. That's the thing is like we we can take these and 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 sit with these teachers and technologies, medicine, psychedelics, sacred plants. But there is also the, with the, the vision, the dream, the truth, the the spirit is 
is is everywhere. Right. <laughs> right. And I think that's I think this is something really important for you to hit on cuz and thank you for sharing this cuz we touch upon psychedelic medicines or entheogens. We we touch upon ceremonial technologies which I would put meditation, breath work, you know, prayer, ikros, whatever in that category. This third pillar which is sort of the connective thread of all of it is the medicine of the earth. Um you know, the father of modern medicine, Hippocrates, said nature is the best medicine. And the truth is, is it's all, everything's energy. It's all a matter of frequency. We know that through the scientific method at this point, it has been said animistically forever by First Nations people. It's very interesting, you know, in terms of the main operating systems, we went from animism to polytheism to monotheism to scientific materialism, which was based in Newtonian physics. Newtonian physics moved into quantum physics and quantum physics is now closing the loop and proving animism. The on a quantum level, everything that first nations people, our indigenous brothers and sisters were saying from the jump is being proven true on a scientific, through the scientific method and through an experiential and empirical methodology of real lived experience, you can interface with that animistic spiritual force uh, of the earth, of, of, of the higher dimensions of consciousness, of the animals, which was always spoken of by First Nations people. The, now that we know everything's energy and everything's frequency, a lot of it is returning to that homeostasis, that natural frequency. One of the first things that happened to me uh, in an altered state of consciousness, working with medicine in a ceremonial setting, was I'd find myself reaching into the fire and covering myself in ash, burying myself burying myself in dirt. And I later would find out that there were a specific tribe in Africa where if you had an illness, they would bury you in the dirt mm -hmm. and leave you for days. And it's about reharmonizing with that natural frequency. You'll hear of prophets and religious texts, 40 days and 40 nights of no food or water in nature. If you go into nature for an elongated period of time, fasted, the doors of perception will open and you will have a direct communication with spirit. If you go into a cave or go into darkness for days, weeks, months, the doors of perception will open. You will have direct communication with spirit and these forces. It's that simple. You don't even need medicine. The medicine is just a tool to help break through the layers, the programmed layers. So even you're saying working with Santa Maria uh, on a very low level, but just being in nature that that was so healing and, you know, and, and look, it sounds to most people, oh, you're in nature, you know, having this massive catharsis and weeping. That's what healing looks like. That's yeah. what healing sounds like. It doesn't, it doesn't sound like taking a pill and putting, throwing a smile on and going about business as usual. It looks like deep, deep purging of emotions and, and release and usually in nature. So I love this story and I didn't know this about your journey that this was the first step of your medicine journey. What happened after this uh, that brought you to entheogens? Was this sort of a doorway into that for you? Yeah. And, you know, I had been working in cannabis for several years um, and I had people in my community who um we're working with psychedelics and, you know, I didn't want to drink or do drugs anymore. But then, you know, I'm hearing more and more about these powerful healing tools. And I was connected with two researchers um, at MAPS. And um, I went to see them because while this incredible experience happened, I also could feel that there was so much like blockage and still pain and difficulty, you know, like 
still, you know, in me. It didn't, it, it peeled open everything and gave me hope to live in the world, to like choose myself and to choose this life. And then the real work began sort of a thing. And um, I worked with these two therapists over the course of a year um, with um, 5-MeO, with um, psilocybin, and with MDMA. And so um, that was incredibly helpful. And then those teachers started calling me these kinds of medicines because I, you know, I was afraid of using psychedelics because I didn't want to use drugs, right? Yeah, same. And so it was like this, like, okay, well, what is this? So it was, you know, I know what it's like to feel literally the feeling of addiction for me was like in my cell, like in the cells of my body, like this hunger need in the cells of my body. And so since I know what that feels like, now it's a memory, but like I know what that feels like and I am very aware of that. So when I, especially at first, because I was new to sitting with these different different medicines, I would look carefully and like be very sort of measured you know, first I, I worked with therapists, then I started sitting with myself, then I started sitting in ceremonies. And, you know, the 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 ceremonial container is really where I've received the deepest healing. Same. Like by far. How did working with those medicines did was it especially coming from a place of addiction, was it an immediate recognition that this is not a drug? This is not, this is, this is not like alcohol or anything. And that it was a spiritual interface, a spiritual experience. Was that immediate for you? Or was that a relationship you built over time with the plants? Mm -hmm. The most deeply, deeply psychically impactful has been the medicine work that I have done. And it's not because of the medicine work and doing it all the time with an immense amount of frequency and, you know, kind of gripping it. It is having a healthy relationship to that, having time to integrate right. and having, and really feeling into how does this feel for me? Okay. This feeling, like, I remember one time I took MDMA and I had the feeling of like this, like, I want more in this way that I remember. I want more. And I was like, Mm, this is, I don't know what that means. And to even be honest with myself around what that meant was difficult, you know, but like being honest, you know, and this is where these, you know, different spiritual programs, recovery programs, like coupled, like radical honesty, you know, walking the path of honesty, the red road, like it, it is an integrated approach that I have found deeply helpful because we need I need, I need teachings and teachers. I need community, sangha, you know, like, like others in, that I'm in intimate relationship with, that I tell the truth to, that I share things, that's who see all of me, you know, that, that love me for who I am, that forgive me for everything that, you know, and this is a mature person. You know, this also involves having mature, beautiful, similar seekers and probably similar, like, wounds. You know, people who have moved through deep wounding, that's what I find, you know, my my close ones are, you know, probably why we also get along so well. Yeah, same. It's be, feeling like you you could be seen in your entirety. I think the shame you talked about, that's the thing I deal the most around this path is I feel shame. I don't know where it comes from, especially this is pretty mainstream, the work we do now. You know, it's 
it just sort of everything comes to the surface. It's just the collective shift and, and getting reintegrated into being your authentic self uh, when maybe our past version of ourself wouldn't wouldn't have wanted us to be some of the ways we are now. <laughs> hey gang, pardon the interruption. We'll be back after a quick break from our sponsors. Sorry for the interruption. More Awakened Underground now. My question for you would be, so going from 5-MEO, MDMA, and the sacred mushroom, that led you to being called to work with grandmother medicine, mm-hmm. correct? Yeah. Um, I had been invited to grandmother medicine ceremonies for you know a number of years before just something in me said, yeah, I'm ready to do that. I was scared. <laughs> yeah, same. <laughs> you, like, you should be. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, mean, I mean, there's nothing to fear, but yeah. it ain't no joke. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Until, until I just, I knew, you know? And like, I just want to say something because, you know, you talked about your shame and, and how, and I felt shame, but like, also, don't you feel like so awesome? Because like, I feel so awesome. I'm like, I am a fucking warrior. I mean, like, <laughs> honestly, you know, to like walk this path to like survive through and see and to show up, you know? Well, the actual work itself is like warrior work. Yeah. I mean, it's like, I mean, I, you know, it's, you go through to hell and back, literally. Yeah. And I mean, the greatest thing this medicine teaches us is our strength. Because after you step into the fire time and yes. time again, there's really nothing to fear. And when you really know the true yeah. depths of this work and that these actually are medicines for consciousness to be yes. able to speak our truth at this time without being, you know, hung up on a pike and, and killed in front of a, a village, you know, as our many of our ancestors, whether you were a witch or you're an indigenous person, it doesn't matter. This is a rare time where people are able to speak about these modalities publicly with far less repercussions in the past. So I, I do feel like very empowered by it. Honestly, the only barrier, I've, the, the most recent healing has been publicly communicating it, but yeah. it has been an exorcism for me yeah. to do so. Actually, this show has changed. I will, or I am an artist, a director, and a writer by profession. This was a very service-oriented project. And after this, I'm like, oh my God, I will never do anything for a result or an outcome. I will only make things to heal myself. Like this is something that I feel and I need to speak authentically about that feeling and translate it through this piece of art or this piece of material so I can release it. Like, cause this has been doing the show has been like binding that pain and, and releasing it and watching every guest that comes on, uh, you know, in our community too, who, so everyone's like, they're brothers and sisters of mine who've never said anything. And they're these crazy, like wizards that I see in the underground, you know, like, and they're absolutely like doing like crazy work, helping these people heal and fighting the systems. These are true blue, like anarchist rebel wizards. Like I love it. And I love seeing them come out and tell their story and they're pretty like put together about it and they present it in a real digestible way. And I'm like, if they only saw like how I see you, like, you know, on a, you know, on a, when there's a full moon and, and we're going yeah. deep, you know? Uh, but okay. So I'm going, I'm on a tangent. I know you got me all hyped up when you're like, don't you just love that? Don't you feel like a warrior though? Uh, so why don't, okay. What I want to know is, <laughs> and ayahuasca, I, when we spoke one time, you were telling me about how that medicine helped heal that chronic pain. Can you take me to your work with grandmother medicine and to that healing? Sure. First, I want to share the first time I sat with ayahuasca. 
many things happened, but in particular, I was transported to being my native ancestors and I experienced colonization. And what it was like was there I was. I was in my wigwam. I was with my family. Um, I was like doing things. And then all of a sudden, first it started out as like almost like a cloud, like something came, like the people didn't come first, something came first. And like the, like I could feel a shift in the landscape. And then the people came and like the killing came and the moving and the rape and the fires and the everything. And then at some point they, they said, well, if you go over here, we're not going to like, you're going to be safe over here and we're not going to mess with you. So we like went over there and then we got there and they fucking lied. The like betrayal on betrayal and the like killing and the everything. And like, actually, as I'm telling you this, like my back is starting to hurt really bad because like, The hits keep on coming, you know what I mean? (laughs) Like in the worst way. So um, anyway, and so I experienced all of that when I drank this medicine. And then I came out of it and I'm just like, I don't even understand how the hell I'm going to process this. Like I had never, and I had experienced a lot in my life, okay? Like we didn't even get into all the things that were done to me and every, like it doesn't, whatever, hurt people, hurt people. That was like the most. And I'm laying there and I'm like completely overwhelmed. But then something like amazing happened, which is like 15, 20 minutes later, it was like this place in my body, this place of pain loosened and dissipated. And it was like, I no longer just conceptually experienced colonization. It was like my ancestors showed me they had me see that and 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 the the true seeing and being there and going through it released this place in me now still when i drink medicine often i will go back to or experience the pain around colonization in because also that colonization continues it didn't just happen one time it continues to happen. That is that is one of the powerful, sick forces. Systemic grips is colonization, further colonization. That is happening within the medicine space with pharmaceutical companies going and taking things from indigenous people, colonizing them, taking their intellectual property, wrapping that language around it and saying that they own it. Yeah, biopiracy. Yes, you know, a couple of years ago for like about five years ago for several years, I had a lot of trouble walking and it got so bad that for a couple of years, I couldn't walk more than 10 minutes. It would be amazing if I could walk 30 minutes. And keep in mind, this is me where my favorite thing to do is to walk in the woods by myself. Okay. So I couldn't do that because I couldn't walk and I couldn't sleep and I was in so much pain and every place on my body hurt. But like when my legs stopped working, that's when I couldn't even walk around. That was horrible. And so some people, my friends in my medicine community told me about how you can go and diet with plants with ayahuasqueros who will work with you with these other like master plants in the jungle and and sit with grandmother medicine every other night and diet and fast with these plants and that they can help with like deep sickness, you know? And so I just knew when it was first described to me that I needed to go. And so I went 
And this was now actually like exactly a year ago. Oh, wow. I know. Okay. Happy, and I happy, happy rebirthday. Thank yeah. you. Thank you so much. <laughs> I know. It's amazing. And so I went and like, oh my God, dieting is a whole experience of like connecting with these plants that you're you're drinking and you're praying to them and you're sitting with yourself and it's basically like silent meditation and communion and being deeply with yourself like vipassana and with these plants and the medicine every other night and i went so deep one of the nights i didn't even understand that place existed yep i mean insane lost uh, my mind yep. and then the next night i went even deeper yep. where like I was in a prison with like, and the prison bars were going into every, and it was the fear in my mind. It went into every cell in my mind. And I would have been grateful for the prison to be this, this big. It was in every part of my mind. And that was the fear. Wow. Yeah. And so, and I purged like the most epic purging and my legs are healed. My legs were healed after that. Oh I was God. able to start walking three, I would walk for three. I walked yesterday for for four hours outside uh, in in on the on like around the Chumash Caves, which is close to where I live. Oh my God, that's amazing! I know. Okay, first off, thank you for sharing that. That's beautiful. Yeah, and I'm so glad Me your too. legs are feeling better. And that's beautiful, amazing way to heal yourself. And you, I, I know you know that you're co collectively healing. You know your people and our people through going through what you're going through. Something so beautiful just happened now as you that I think we can use as an instrument for with the people who are listening to this uh, to help them understand true healing. You started to tap into a memory of a ceremony of a healing you did. And as you were tapping into it, you began to feel the pain that you weren't feeling just from remembering it. When you were remembering it, right, you were bringing the pain into the light of your awareness the emotion came up and you began to weep, right? So you are healing that pain. Even as you're bringing it up, you are releasing that pressure, right? What happens is, is that we are, there's cameras on, there's a microphone in front of us, there are people around us, there's you and me, and then the shame, and then we push it down, we resist it, we stop it, and then we move off of it. Yeah. So it's like, how can we learn to hold space for each other so when so if my sister right here starts to tell me something and she starts to tap into this pain and it starts to release that i can be silent that we can be silent for her that we can we can start to create a space that rewrites your the, the programmed narrative that you can't work through that you know something very interesting we've had some people uh some fans of the show ask for trigger warnings on the show could you please issue trigger warnings about what we're talking about and, you know, and we've been trying to, we did in the last show, and there's a rolling trigger warning for the entirety of the show as we dive into the unconsciousness of humanity. But one of the things is that through art, through conversation, through song, through dance, we heal. And what we call a trigger warning, when you see something, especially in art, that triggers that wound we don't want to move away from it, turn it into anger and throw it back at the other person. We're trying to provide through art a safe space and through conversation to feel into that pain and to release it, to release it with love. 
And if we can start to do that, that's how we can heal. And there's something in the culture around, it's this righteous indignation of being triggered. And I understand like as people who've dealt with PTSD and trauma and assault and violence and addiction, and terrible, terrible things and depression, all, all sorts of things that we've healed and face and continue to heal. You know, I can say at least from my firsthand experience that it was those, the triggering of that pain that allowed it to release from my system and allowed me to heal. And avoiding that pain, it just kept me in pain and suffering for many, many years. So you being vulnerable enough to tap into and even self-trigger that wound and release it, like I'm grateful for you doing that. You One, it's beautiful to, to, to watch you work through your process. It's inspiring. And to share that vulnerability, it's healing for all of us. You know, and uh, and yeah, it's just we're grateful, and I, I wanted to use it as an opportunity, not to push deeper into the pain, but to validate the work you're doing because it's not, you know, there's something wrong with me. I'm feeling this pain. No, it's there's something right with you. You're feeling this pain. <laughs> you yeah. feel it. Yeah, there's something right. It's inspiring. Yeah. You know, it's it's you're the you're the future I want to see. Thank That's you. a true warrior. What it looks like is is moving into our pain so we can move past it and start to release it. Yeah. So, I mean, one of the things I'd say, though, is because this immense weight of colonization is burdensome. And when it comes to the psychedelic space, especially people not in the space uh, that are also dealing with the trauma of colonization, will will bring up sort of the perpetuation of biopiracy and how do we stop this from happening. And I actually see this as an opportunity as psychedelics come into the mainstream to decolonize, to create a new model uh, and to also create intellectual property for First Nations people to find a way to create laws where indigenous people have essentially copyright or some sort of ownership of these medicines so we can begin to re-imbue a flow of vitality, uh, whether it's whether it's energy or, or financial equity into those communities as, a, as to turn the tide and sort of break the wheel that we've been on and to reverse colonization. In the work you're doing, are you working to, to, uh, with, with this sort of decolonization model? Is there, what are you doing within your actual legal work? I'd love to sort of hear that story and hear about any initiatives uh, that you're bringing to the table to act as an agents for this decolonization that needs to happen. Yeah, I, you know, I want to start with kind of the moment that we're at because everything you said is so deeply right on, <laughs> like all the things. You got it. You yeah, got God. it. Let's, so, let's, like, let's fucking go. 100%. <laughs> big time. Big time. Really. Yeah. Because it's like we are in this like psychedelics are at this intersection of environmental conservation, capitalism, indigenous rights, health care. You know, you go it there are so many intersections. Right. Okay. And, you know, you touched on something that's so important, which is that we are at an opportunity that is particular and particularly unique to psychedelics, which is an opportunity in an emerging space, but with these medicines that provide deep healing, have this indigenous lineage. We need healing so badly. All of us need healing. All of us are traumatized. Yeah. You know, all of us. Facts. 
<laughs> and and those it's a shit show down here. It is a sh- it's a shit show. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, and that's what I guess we all signed up for, right? Yeah, yeah like I guess so. I don't know how anyone does it. I'm, I'm looking around. I'm like, fuck. I feel like I have it really fucking good, and still fucking lot every day. I'm like, yes, Damn, it is. It is a lot. Oh my god. And so it's like, okay, so we're experiencing the lot of a lot of what's happening after COVID, mental health, addiction crisis, all of these people who are suffering in so many ways, but also the people are suffering and the systems are suffering. And when we go through something where we're creating and emerging, we're acknowledging, regulating, legalizing, grappling with whatever, creating systems around whatever it may be, but in particular psychedelics, we are at a very unique really pivotal moment to think. Now we're in process, right? What do we want this to look like? How do we want this to be? This idea that things have to be the way they are in this like habitual momentum and the beast has to keep creating itself over and over and the hungry ghost must just continue to consume. That is not the truth of how things can be. That's And that's something that's deeply profound about For many people, the insight into working with psychedelics is you look and you see, oh, shit, things do not have to be like this. They can be another way. Oh, oh, this. And and then there's all. Oh, and it's in my own mind. I the patriarchy is existing in my own mind. I'm playing out these relationships. The colonization is in my own mind. White supremacy, all these things you're like. And it's out here, but then it's also like, but wait, we can do something different. We are capable of that. You know, we are, it, it's an immense amount of work. It's an immense amount of pro- process, but it's the only work. Like, like the red road is my path, the inward path, and the medicine path is something we speak about. But like, we're all on this kind of like incredible spirit journey right. path, right. you know? I love what you're saying also, because externally, all those unconscious patterns like patriarchy, colonization, you know, everything you just said, it all it shows up externally, but there is just like everything, there is a physical and then there's an energetic model. And there are these energetic spiritual binds that these structures, these traumas have within us. And Mm -hmm. and that's what these medicines do is they allow us to break up and release these sort of energetic prisons and cages that these traumas have on us. So we can begin to rebuild new, you you know, new structures within the the, the physical reality that we're existing Mm in. Which is why it's been very interesting to see that, Current structures that are extractivist, that are part of that, I think about it like taking culture, dominating culture, consuming um, hierarchical culture, dominating law and policy and business and capitalism. It why why seeing those same business as usual being put on the psychedelic space and this moment is so wrong. It's so abhorrent. It's so not what needs to happen for any of us. Like this is the time to rethink and do things differently. And that really, it starts with, there's something that's called the North Star Pledge, which I deeply, deeply recommend people look at. And there's also this incredible sort of morality tale called, we will call it Paula which is a very interesting story for people who are, let's say, entrepreneurs in and around the psychedelic space. And so the North Star Pledge is really about 
you know, for the psychedelics community, but it it is something that has deep resonance in in life and can be used as tools, I find. And the first tenant is starting within, you know, that the work we are doing, that how we come to every moment starts within this inner looking, right? And that we are we are doing active work in various ways to study these traditions, to dismantle our own minds and our this this world from all of these, you know, really just all the isms that are just prisons for us all. We all want out of it. We all want that freedom, you know? And like a lot of what, you know, you were talking about earlier, what I heard you saying was a lot about truth. Like when you speak about authenticity, when we speak about truth, when we speak about like, you know, kind of unpeeling these layers, but not just for ourselves, in 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 relationship to others. That's the thing. You know, with these types of medicines, it's not a selfish journey. It cannot be a selfish journey. It needs to be a journey of recognition. And what am I doing in service of others? In service of myself, yes, but in community. You know, we really, we are in in that knowing of our interconnectedness. We need that. And so as laws are developing, as businesses are developing, have developed, are raising money, are operating, they need to be cognizant of the uniqueness of these medicines, but also on a larger level, the unique time we're in. You know, psychedelics creating, you know, new laws around psychedelics. And I want to talk about that for sure. And I want us to have different business models. And I want us to have different ownership structures. And I want everything that you were talking about. I want all of that. And also, we need that across the board. You know, that's the thing. It's like psychedelics can be this example, this place, this especially given the medicines, especially given these powerful tools, like it lends itself to perceivably out of the box thinking, but we need that out of the box thinking overall to not burn down the planet, to burn ourselves down more, you know, to like continue to suffer from just the 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 isolation consumerism capitalism dominance hierarchy all of that you know right right one of my uh now past teachers the late don howard he used to say shamanism doesn't need to be westernized westernism needs to be shamanized that's right and it's so ironic because what these medicines do is break boxes they break these structures uh everything is fluid. It's all flow. It's all vibe. If you've ever interfaced or commune with spirit, it's just movement and ever evolving and ever changing. I say it all the time on this show. Stasis is how disease forms. If the river is flowing, no disease can form. If the river is blocked and the water stills, disease forms. Movement, movement, movement. All movement is medicine, whether it's dance, whether it's song. I don't care. Even if the zig looks real dark and shadowy, you got to zig to zag. Just zig and zag. It doesn't matter if you take two steps back to take one step forward. It does not matter. Just keep moving. You know, as, as Dory from Find Nemo says, just keep swimming, baby. Just keep swimming. Just keep moving. All movement is medicine. And so one of the ironic things is to communicate a a higher consciousness or a more highly evolved framework, you have to put it in a box because the very linguistic system system we use is a box of communication. So we're trying to figure out how do we fix that? How do we, how do we not 
put this in a box or how do we put it in a in a new box that transcends the old box and at least will be a bridge to these higher way of being. So my question for you would be is how do we do that? And being someone that was heavily involved in cannabis reform, which is the first illicit sacred plant medicine that came into the mainstream, it was unconsciously, unethically criminalized, and then it it came into the the, the mainstream culture as a medicine and is now is used publicly, you know, all over the United States. Is there anything that we did in, in the cannabis journey? Like, was it eventually co-opted or corrupted by uh, the, 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 you know, the mainstream corporate structures and how do we prevent that from happening within the psychedelic space? I remember that, you know, at the beginning of law reform in California, Especially, you know, yeah, you think about 1996, the 2000s, you know, there were lovers and believers who were involved in cannabis, sort of like people on the fringes, the farmers, the healers, and also people who were entrepreneurs and making money off of these plants. Like all, it was a, it was a diverse community. Um, what happened with cannabis from my perspective <laughs> is that it got eaten up by dominant culture, by the dominant economic system, by the dominant political models. Um, and yeah, co-opted, I think is exactly right. Um, because the systems are so strong, <laughs> because it really is a David and Goliath situation. You know, we did the best we knew to do at the time in the in the legalization and regulation of cannabis. That's also part of it. When you go out there and do something new, you look around and you think, hmm, I would have done some things pretty differently. At the time when we were working on the legalization of cannabis in California, we were not in the really the the place we are culturally, um, politically, health-wise, it was a different time. And I know for me, there was a lot of trying to fit in with dominant culture, showing up to hearings and putting on a suit and saying, you know, we'll pay taxes, we're, we're going to bring jobs, we're going to bring education because we were trying to get them to accept us. Be, because we didn't want to be illegal anymore. Like that was the conversation, you know, protesting at the Capitol. We are farmers. We're not criminals. You know, that's how we knew to make political change. And we did. But I didn't understand at the time. And I think most of us didn't understand how deeply sick the systems are and how much they just will eat up this beautiful thing that goes through this system of law and regulation and market, getting returns on investments as much as possible for shareholders and certain business structures and corporate forms and all of that, right? That on the other side, it's, I mean, cannabis is like any other widget. She is not. She, her sacred plant self is not. She is not. But the way we have treated her is like Another widget, consumer package, good branding, influencers, coolness. That's what it is. That's what's. That's what it largely cannabis is at this point, and it's a heartbreak for so many people. And for people who don't know that, it's just another thing to consume and buy. And did I get the coolest one? Did I get the newest one? And like, that's just what it is. But that is a, a mirror to ourselves as a society. That's what we do. You know, like, okay, so that's what it is. And there are efforts to reclaim outdoor 
growing all organic products and amazing farmers who are doing beautiful work and people who are running shops. And I don't mean to make it all sound so dire, but mostly it's it's like other products that are in the market. And that's right. what we're going to see. And we're going to see that globally, you know? And so like, I don't, it's not that the ship has sailed, but on some level, that's the thing about law reform. That's why I love being a lawyer is that I understand how that system works. And in the process of creating laws around something, because I know I went through all of that with cannabis, we are in a pivotal moment. That's why like the work that I and we are doing around with psychedelics is informed by what we saw in the cannabis space. Amazing. Because we cannot have it look like that. But you know what? It will. Parts of it will. Of course. Because why? the dominating forces are so dominating because that's all they know to do and they will do that. Right. But that's where we have to preserve community healing models, religious use, okay? In Oregon right now, the Oregon psilocybin program is working its way through the political process so that people will be able to go to service centers and use psilocybin. Right now, those draft rules do not have a ceremonial religious use framework. And those draft rules will mean that for any person to have a treatment, one treatment, I mean, it's integration post post or, or preparation integration and the session, it's somewhere between $700 to $2,000. Who yeah. can afford that? Yeah. When, when, when BIPOC folks and people who are at the sort of lowest, most suffering in society economically – cannot afford that. And then these ceremonial healing models provide greater access. And there's major pushback to allowing that because businesses that are planning on opening there are concerned about that taking away money out of their pockets. Something is sick. Right. Absolutely. I was just, we were at a conference for, it was a Chopra event on Sunday. And this, the head of a company called Sybin, a pharmaceutical company that is synthesizing psilocybin got up and started talking about it i'm like okay like okay we understand that because of patent protection laws these medicines that come from nature are in the public domain am i wrong about that mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so they're going to synthesize them and they're going to say oh we're making it so we can mask out and we can make it last longer and we're going to optimize the formula and we're going to remove this chemical which is neurotoxic and this that you are removing the spirit from the plant. That distillation, that removal of the disconnect from from uh, taking a sub taking taking Mother Earth out of the equation is just a ver a metaphor for everything that's going on in life yeah. in every single way. And it's there. You're gonna miss. Your, there's something missing from it. And look, I, I let me let me be very frank. I have not worked with a synthesized psilocybin. I've not worked with a synthesized ayahuasca. You know, I don't know that. I've worked with a synthetic uh, DMT and I've worked with naturally occurring dimethyltryptamine compounds. And uh, there still was a spiritual element to the plant. So I might be being broad here, but I'm digressing. <laughs> hey gang, pardon the interruption. We'll be back after a quick break from our sponsors. Sorry for the interruption. More Awakened Underground now. So from all the experience of seeing what happened uh, to Santa Maria, what do we do when it comes to entheogen reform? How, what, what are some policies that you're working on to, uh, to try to guard against what's coming? 
because the, the train has left the station. Mm-hmm. So all we can do is sort of like throw the fucking train mm-hmm. tracks in the, right in front of it the, and try to steer it, you mm-hmm. know, before somebody else steers it for us. Mm-hmm. First, we need to insist that companies that are forming around any type of psychedelic, I don't care if it's synthetic or or not, need to operate and form in a way that respects indigenous lineages, which means active engagement with indigenous reciprocity, which is a listening relationship to indigenous communities. Yes, it might be financial investments, but it might be, as you were talking about earlier, ownership by indigenous communities. But it's an active, it's not checking the box. It is an active engagement. And as a lawyer, you know, we talk with our clients about exactly this sort of thing. And through the Psychedelic Bar Association, we are grappling with these issues. And Chakruna Institute for Psychedelic Plant Medicine, a beautiful organization that I just love and I've been working with for years. We also grapple with these issues. Actually, Chakruna has an amazing initiative, the Indigenous Reciprocity Initiative of the Americas. Yes. And that is like, you know, so 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 people can check that out. So companies, people, individuals, me, you, we all need to be grappling with this on a daily basis. We all, it's not just like, okay, I've done that thing and now I'm done. No, it is an active engagement around indigenous reciprocity. And and companies, people, we need to be actively engaged in how can we operate in a way that provides a net positive benefit to society, that isn't an extractivist approach. That's why like we, a lot of people are forming and exploring nonprofit models, public benefit models, other types of um, stakeholder ownership type models, different types of corporate models where you are maybe, for example, putting the economics and the voting rights siloed, right? And other kind of creative corporate forms where you're kind of, you know, figuring out how do we, if we care about these these purposes, yes, we're going to make money. We're going to have provide, ser- you know, different types of services, whatever we're doing. But what's driving the the decision making in the company isn't just make as much money as possible right for the shareholders that's not what's driving it we have a purpose here and we have other priorities and this is where we absolutely like on the planet earth <laughs> companies need to shift their relationship to money and their responsibility to others and people do too i mean you know it's a practice you know, it has impacted how we run our law firm, this continued work around these issues. You have to grapple with deep inner issues around like scarcity and abundance. You have to like grapple with all of these deep issues and like really actively humble yourself before your own grabbing and grappling. I can speak for myself, you know, fear and like, okay, be with that fear and like living in this way is an, a deep external engagement and responsibility and a deep internal engagement and deep responsibility, you know, to self and other. Absolutely. I, lo- I love, mm-hmm. absolutely. Well said. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And I think we're going to need to be on the lookout for all these companies are going to pop up and we're going to have to be vigilant and making sure the, you know, you vote with your dollar, the companies you support, you give your time and your attention and your money to. We, you're going to need to make sure that they have initiatives or in alignment with initiatives like at the Chakuna Institute. What was it? The North Star Initiative as well? Well, yeah, the North Star Pledge, yes. And companies should be taking that pledge. But the other thing is this. The laws themselves need to 100% 
require and grapple with this. That's where we need to go because the thing is, yes, companies need to do that, but laws need to require this because I really don't see that people are bad. The frameworks are bad. And companies like with cannabis, people went and they came to us. We want to form a company. We want to get a cultivation license. Okay. If the law said you have to operate for a public benefit purpose in this type, you know, in whatever respect you want it to be, and you have to have some sort of plan around indigenous reciprocity or something. And there are many smart people who are looking at how do we figure this out in the psychedelic space? How do we create metrics? And it also needs to not be a game of gotcha and overregulation. You know, there is some amount of we have to be accountable to ourselves, and this needs to be an invitation, a pledge to continue to take concrete steps. So it's like that's also what we need to do is not make it adversarial, overly burdensome in terms of regulations, but the laws that are being passed now must mandate in various ways, and we're working on that in California, in Oregon, in Colorado, they have to mandate a different way of doing things otherwise it will be business as usual i promise you and i don't want in, i don't want in 10 years to like we're hanging out and i'm like yeah we'll see how that shit happened a 100% we can create a uh, a wise person once said you don't uh, take down an institution by attacking it from the outside you create a new model that yes. renders the old one obsolete this is a reciprocity a the law of equal exchange this is this is what needs to be brought into the corporate and legal sectors i had a teacher who would say that his tribe had a, a word, I, I might butcher this a little i'm sorry but I, uh, the word was i believe witaka uh, and it meant to take more than you needed and he said that his people that was actually an illness and if someone in his community was taking more than they needed, they were infected with Whitaka and they actually were quarantined from the rest of the tribe. And they would, he would say that the tree only takes as much water as it needs in the soil. You know, the, the lion only eats as much yes. as it needs. You know, it does not take more than it needs and that that is a disease to their people. And when the colonials came over, they knew that the white men were infected with Whitaka or the, the colonials and it was all sorts of colonials, but the, the colonials were infected with Whitaka and that disease permeates our culture and permeates every institution and business model. So we are trying to get back to that law of equal exchanges. And that's yeah. why we're already starting to do this with companies, seeing how people are uh, being, whether we want to see companies that are environmentally conscious or that's socially right. progressive. In many ways, that's been politicized and weaponized. But at the same time, we still need to look for these companies that are are, are giving back in a way or doing it consciously. And when it comes to psychedelics, it's going to start and stop with First Nations people. And how are we honoring and decolonizing and giving back? It's also going to start and stop with how are we giving back to underprivileged communities? Because they have been the greatest victims of the drug war, which has been a form of genocide and enslavement and one of the great atrocities of uh, our, the modern time. And how are we going to heal that wound? You know, this is a form of rep reparation here that needs to happen. And honestly, psychedelics should be that, whether it's the business model or or what they have to offer as medicines anyways. You know, this is the, this is a big healing that needs to happen. And there is a little bit of a, uh, a white dominated, uh, you know, a, more wealthy people have access to them and we need to sort of spread it out. Yeah. And it's crazy because you talk with the drafters of, for example, the Oregon Measure 109 
and ask questions about access. Well, wait a second. Did you guys run some numbers? <laughs> like, how are people, the, the people who have been marginalized, impacted by the war on drugs, the war on people, poverty, all of the just like horrible things in the society? And the answer is like, well, that's not feasible for businesses. They have to make money. They have to operate. No, you figure out a way. Our law firm does not have minimum billable hours. We keep our overhead really low. We make sure that there's a set amount of time for pro bono work, for thought leadership work. You just change things. Imagine bigger. Open your mind and your heart to something that's different. But also, we have to demand that. I mean, truly? Absolutely. Absolutely. No, mimesis is a huge problem. Uh, mimicry. It's a it's a survival mechanism we can find within the animal kingdom. An organism will mimic its environment to better blend in mm. and to avoid uh, being killed, losing its yeah. life. So you'll see everyone, you know, it's how we'll see people beaten or sexually assaulted in the streets and no one does anything. You know, it's people mimic their environment to blend in. We have to make sure you're standing up and, and standing up consciously, not not by lashing out at each other angrily and and acting with righteous indignation, but doing so with love, speaking out with love, and that will shift things. So right now, entheogens and psychedelic medicines are mostly illegal in the States. And there's also, uh, I believe, UN laws that the uh, the United States pushed that have made these medicines Schedule One substances in most of the world. Can you please take us through where we are right now in the fight for legalization or where we have been and where we're going and how our listeners can help be a positive force for the legalization of psychedelic medicines. First of all, psychedelics and entheogens have been legal for the vast, vast majority of human history. (laughs) If you really think about that, it's only been in the last, really, I mean, it started with the the strong criminalization and the war on drugs and the passage of the Controlled Substances Act in the United States. And, you know, around the 60s and 70s, when people started, well, lots of things were happening, but, you know, people started, I, I think one of the fears that government had around using psychedelics is that it does have that experience of cracking open the mind. And, in, and and seeing these power structures and that maybe they're not working. So it was a threat to this government. You, you think know? they're aware of this? Oh, of course. I mean, do you think they figured this out at MK Ultra? They're still studying it? I mean, I've heard people in government, you know, come out whistleblowers and say, oh, yeah, they're well aware of ayahuasca. They're using it. They have programs. I, I, I believe that that's probably true. But, you know, uh, I have no I don't know. for that. So I, I, yeah. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I mean, they are – the government wants to understand power. And the government, because they seek to hold onto their power so strongly, not everyone in government, there are people in government who come from a loving place, but a lot of government systems, structures, the law seeks to uphold the status quo. You said earlier, you talked about things being flowing. I loved that you said that. That was so beautiful. It's so, we need to have, things need to 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 die. Things need to move. Things need to shift. Anytime we start to hold so tightly, we are done a deep disservice, you know? I love that you said things need to die because all movement is the shifting from one form to the next. And every infinitesimal incremental movement is a life, death, rebirth cycle, period. Yeah. That's why we're all so afraid. That's why we're afraid of change, afraid of this, afraid to do the ceremony, afraid to do that. Every movement is death. 
every movement is rebirth. And the thing is, is once you're in flow, that means you are fully realizing that life, death, and rebirth are not separate. They are one in the same. And every death is a rebirth and every rebirth is life and every life is death. It does not matter. The compartmentalization, the segregation, the separation of these mechanisms is the very fallacy and the very source of all disease and unconsciousness. I'm sorry to go on a rant. <laughs> Please. No, I so, I mean, 100% agree. And so what's dying globally is this very antiquated, but not longstanding relationship toward psychedelics and entheogens. That's what's dying. And so we have in this country in particular, certain local jurisdictions that have passed decriminalization or really deprioritization measures. So, you know, for personal use and possession of psychedelics, it's not a crime anymore. It's the lowest enforcement priority. Then, you know, you have a, a state like Oregon that's created a regulatory model and that's in the process of, of working out all of those details. What happens in Oregon will inform what's happening in other parts of this country. California is working on a legalization model. So there are these different entry points for accessing these medicines and law changes, MDMA, psilocybin, synthetic working its way through the FDA approval process. There are big, you know, psychedelic drug companies basically that are working on all sorts of things, as you know, um, will have, there's also the religious use exemption or legal protections under federal law that exist for, you know, some uh, on a, you know, uh, on a, on an acknowledged basis, like the UDV and the Santo Daime and other spiritual communities navigating how they can be protected under a law that doesn't, you know, gives them kind of a shield if there's a question about it, but the DEA isn't granting any exemptions to these communities. So, you know, that that's kind of, that's something that's ongoing. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's this, this shift that's happening federally, state level, locally, in the each of us as individuals in our relationship with these medicines, learning about them, understanding them, and grappling with what types of systems we want to implement. I mean, again, this will be a very telling story of who we are as humans, as where we are at right now. You know, and I and many other people, I am a founding board member of the Psychedelic Bar Association, which is a national organization of lawyers who are lawyering in a psychedelic way. And if you look at our awesome website, you can see what that means. For lawyers, the lineage of lawyering is about upholding the status quo. It upholds domination. It it is uncomfortable with change. It tells lawyers tell the story of I'm just a tool for my clients. They often like to think that they are not actually giving advice, that they're not bringing in cultural norms and morals into advising clients, but they are. Lawyers are leaders. True. Lawyers also need to be right-sized and listen and not come from a also encourage more domination you know, and so it's beautiful to be working with lawyers across the country who recognize that, who are living in a more integrated way, in a more humble, from a more humble place. And we have all sorts of people in the organization, and all my relations are there. And so we have, you know, it gives me practice and all of us practice to listen to differing points of view, you know, the people who want to see business as usual, basically. 
that's also, those are our relations as well, you know? And so for me, it's really about influencing the laws that are being made, advising people in the space in, in 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 an aware way, you know, bringing, concretely bringing these concepts that we're talking about, shifting economic drivers, respecting indigenous people and lineages, respecting the earth, respecting each other, knowing that we want to have access for poor people, for all people to these medicines, but also done in a way that is thoughtful to conservation. And we don't take and take and take. We don't replicate the disease that you mentioned, you know? Uh, is is the paradox at play. Uh, and there's both solace in it and a, and a, and a burden from it. Uh, there's my question would be well, twofold here. One is to about overtaking. Uh, we see we saw what happened in Santa Cruz, I believe, with the legalization of the sacred cactus, Wachuma San Pedro. And there was a movement and actually the law, I believe, was rolled back after it was legalized, which was a long, hard fought battle. Wachuma is a really beautiful medicine, grandfather medicine. Uh, and it was because it's a sacred plant to those people those those tribes and it was it's scarcely grown on their land and uh concerns about it being overtaken from the soil and put into extinction i'm not i'm not sure if you're more familiar with the situation but how do we prevent this is there anything we can put into place to help protect the indigenous people and and the plants from being uh oversourced to to extinction yeah, and you know it's not just about oversourcing, right? Because for for example, for the Native American Church, peyote they they see peyote as teachers, as beings. So you could grow it. Some some people say, okay, well, we're just going to grow it in a greenhouse. It's cool. We're not going to we're not going to take it from these certain lands. But for for those people, even grown in a greenhouse because those are beings, those are their relatives. Right. That is also an abomination. And that is not also not what these people want. And here's the thing. Can we try to not inflict more trauma and also be part? Because we are traumatized on the other side when we are the takers, when we are the dominators. We are also traumatized. Can we not do that here? And especially when we're talking about sacred plants of indigenous people when they're saying, please don't legalize that. Don't decriminalize that. We just want these one thing, these two things, please listen. So don't pass laws that allow for people to think, yeah, I can go and take some of that. I can grow some of that. Just like, just like, just leave it alone. No one has ever brought this up on this show. So you're talking about honoring these plants as beings yes and this is an on-ramp to some real deep fucking some deep deep metaphysical tea here so there is this illusion of separation and it's found within our own this own belief system that we are separate from call it god call it divinity from the cosmos and what you learn on these medicines that call it spirit call it home, call it your ancestors, call it consciousness herself, is reaching out to to connect with us and to bring us back into unity and harmony. And the healing we're talking about is relinquishing all the programming that is keeping us disconnected from that greater harmonic of the one. Now, these spiritual forces, people think they're not here. People think we're alone, 
walk outside, open your eyes. You want to know what spirit is here? You want to know what it looks like? It looks like the bug that just landed on your shoulder that you just squashed. You want to know our unconsciousness, how unconscious we truly are and disconnected. When you see what these forces look like, you'd be blown away how insect they are. Be blown away how animal they are. Starts to make sense why you see Egyptian hieroglyphs of their gods and they're half animal, half human. What were they trying to say with this chimera model? What were they trying to say here? Every animal, every insect, every plant has a unique spirit, just as we all have a unique spirit, and then also has the all-pervading source consciousness spirit working through it. And when you work with these medicines, what I'm most blown away from, and up until this point on the show, I've tried to keep the genie in the bottle a little bit here and call it source, call it universe. There are distinctions. There are individual spirits. Each plant has a spirit to it, has a personality to it, has a medicine to it, has a frequency to it. If you want to bastardize, cage, synthesize any of these plants, you are doing it to that spirit. You are doing it as above, so below, as within, so without. This is There is a sweater thread. There is a polarity at play. When you persecute and kill and eat a pig, not to go off on this, I know everyone loves bacon, but there is a all purveying spirit to that pig. I've been shown in a medicine ceremony this it looked it was it was so sad it was this I was in space and it was this pig spirit and it was twisted and decaying and and the, the medicine said this is the spirit of the pig this is what you're doing to it. Yeah. Uh, and this is its health because of where it is. I don't understand. Does this make sense? No, it doesn't make sense. Can I do I have all the pieces to explain it? No, I don't. But all I can say is what is clear from doing this work is there is a spirit to these plants and if you want to take it and stick it in a cage and take it out of the land and dehumanize it or de uh, I don't know what the word would be, but just to remove, remove the, the, oh my God, it's so crazy. It's so, it's such a, so ironic. We don't even have a word. I keep wanting to say dehumanize, yeah. but it's like, we don't even have a, do you know what I'm saying? I do. What the fuck? Yeah. Uh-huh. Do you, what are we even doing to it? We're, we're, but we're removing its divinity. We're removing the fact yeah. that it's sentient, mm-hmm. that it, that there's a consciousness to it. And it's so crazy that I don't even have mm. the linguistic system. I don't, we're not even stretched there to, for me to even form a sentence around this. Well, mm-hmm. sorry, I'm, I'm no, now, no, 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 full rant. You know, this is what it actually like, like in, it, it reminds me of this conversation around, and I really do feel mixed about the word psychedelics plant medicines or medicines or entheogens or sacred medicines. And, you know, we, we, psychedelics in the English language appear sort of a more broad category, but psychedelics as a word is much more about the consciousness, the individual consciousness, and less about the orientation of plant, sacred, earth, holistic, you know, and, and, and almost one feels Almost like Western. Right. Psychedelics mind manifesting. That's right. And and the other is this body, earth, heart, fullness, connectedness, posture. Right. You know? And like, it's really, th- yeah, thank you for, for seeing that. Thank you for knowing that. And that will happen, you know? And also, we need to speak the truth of these concerns that we hold, these knowings that we feel about how really just like 
detrimental that is. Yeah, truth. Well, what I'd say is, because we're coming to the end of our time here, I mean, there's two questions I'd ask you before we go. I mean, first, is there anything you would like to share with the audience uh, how they could support either the work you're doing, uh, follow you, or uh, support just the general legalization and decriminalization of these medicines? Please support Chakruna Institute for Psychedelic Plant Medicines. This organization is a beautiful organization, nonprofit organization running on a shoestring budget. We need money. Um, the organization is committed to sacred plant medicines, BIPOC folks, LGBTQIA, um, indigenous reciprocity, really respecting and 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 understanding the need for access, the diversity of the community, of the diversity of the global south and the global north and the international intersection of all of the concepts of health, health equity, environmental sustainability. I mean, this is an organization that deeply grapples with the most important cutting edge issues and puts out beautiful content, community forums on Zoom, wonderful wonderful conferences, just like really just like people from all over the world who care, <laughs> lawyers, <laughs> botanists, indigenous leaders, all sorts of people. So it's a global organization. So please really support Chakruna. Look at the Indigenous Reciprocity of the Americas Initiative. Look at that. Participate in that. Um, yeah, I would say that. And, and you know, look at the North Star Pledge. Look at the story we will call it Paula, um, and then really engage with these regulation and legalization measures in a way that demands something that looks very different. And don't be afraid to say it needs to be completely perceivably out of the box, because we cannot do business as usual here. We can't do it anywhere. But when a space is being legalized, that is this precious moment to create the structure, the scaffolding that it can actually look different. So participate, care about that, and then be aware of companies and people. If you're engaging in the psychedelic space, grapple with these issues and ask other people how they are doing it. You know, how are you? How, how are you? What are you implementing? What concrete steps are you taking? What are you thinking about? How are you doing it? Not in a way of gotcha, but in a way of an invitation because we don't always know how to. That's why, like, on the Psychedelic Bar Association, on our website, each of the members of the Bar Association say this is the particular North Star principle that we've incorporated into the Bar Association that I am actively engaging with this year. And this is how I'm going to do it. So we can show each other this is what we're grappling with. This is what we're working on because we are all works in progress. So, you know, it's 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 showing up for that. So I would say you know, show up for these beautiful organizations that are doing amazing work, you know, and participate in the law reform process and be wise consumers. Beautiful. Can we at Awaken Underground take the North Star Pledge? As yes. A, okay. And Please we, do that. And we will. Yes. We are your ambassadors and supporters until time and memoriam for whatever you need. We support you and appreciate you being, you know, a part of the Awaken Underground and doing the work you're doing on the in the underground and on the surface level. Last question before you transition off this rock. If there's one thing you have to say, one message for the world, it doesn't have to be on theme, just so you feel that it was said, you know, your heart song was sung. What would you like to say or share with the world? Anything before you go. 
What's your one message? To remember who we truly are. To remember who we truly are. To like do the work to love ourselves through it all, to remember who we truly are, you know? Yeah, well said. Yeah, I love you, Ariel. Thank you for everything. I appreciate you to no end. Yeah, thank Thank you. you. Thank you so much. That's our show. Thank you for listening to the Awaken Underground podcast. We appreciate your time, attention, and support. Please be sure to hit the subscribe button. Throughout the season, we will be interviewing doctors, scientists, shamans, thought leaders, and celebrities who work with psychedelic medicines and are ready to come out from the underground to share their stories of healing with the world and what these medicines have to teach us about the true nature of reality. The Awakened Underground is a production of Calvary Audio in association with iHeartRadio. The Awakened Underground is created, hosted, and written by Cody Blue, directed by Tanya Dahl, produced by Cody Blue and Jeff Apple, executive produced by Dana Bernetti and Keegan Rosenberger, co-executive produced by Jason Seagraves and Brandon Morgan, post-supervision, sound design, and sound editing by Josh Windish, studio engineered by Armand Zadie, and a very special thanks to Daniel DeLoretto, Eric Klein, Alexander Chinisi, David Grillo of Thank You Plant Medicine, our teachers, First Nations people, our ancestors, our families, and these sacred plants.